Hello, welcome to Discursion with your usual host Stephen and... And Dominic. We've had a brief Christmas break, but now we're back, ready to talk film. Today we're looking at Jacques Tourneur's um, Out of the Past, quintessential film noir from 1947. Um, Robert Mitchum, Jane Greer, Kirk Douglas, all good people. Absolutely. Uh, As usual, we're not going to avoid spoilers, so... um... We'll turn away now if uh, you don't want to have the film spoiled. Uh, we should give the usual attempt at, well, I won't attempt a full plot summary because I think that would be beyond me. Um, oh, that makes me feel better that you said <laughs> that, actually, because there are a number of twists and turns um, in the film that make it quite difficult to give a succinct recap. Absolutely. And I feel it kind of... Uh, I don't know, do you have this experience? It almost feels like in its sort of second half or its latter third, it almost sort of runs away with you, so it gets more complicated than you've been led to expect up to that point. Absolutely, yeah. I feel like the double crossings come thick and fast towards the end of the film. Yes. Uh, Jane Greer's role in particular is is quite dastardly and she's quite difficult to keep up with. Right, Um, Absolutely, yes. It's all about who who thinks uh, who people think they are, and who they think other people are, and who they think other people think they are. So these, yes, complicated reflexive yes. Um, interpretations, which everybody is doing rightly or wrongly um, throughout the film, often wrongly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. Just to give, yes, to give some kind of um, some kind of bearings before we get into more details. So we meet um, fairly early on. Um, we meet Jeff Bailey, played by Robert Mitchum, and his his uh, his sort of blonde, all American, um, yeah, girlfriend. And the first major part of the narrative is told in 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 flashback, as um, you know, is 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 actually the uh, Jeff Bailey character's um, sort of monologue, I suppose, or. You know, represents the story that he's he's telling to Anne about his past. Not not his. It's sort of a, something that happened kind of three or more years before. So it's not, which in some ways I find slight, slightly surprising. You know, it's 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 not the long distant past. Or, or there's some sort of there's some disconnection between the actual length of calendar time and and this fact that this is. Oh, he wants this to be another life. Which he wants, he wants to have escaped, and this involves that he's been hired. Well, he's formerly a, a private detective, and is hired by um, Whit Sterling, played by uh, Kirk Douglas, with a fair amount of relish. I think it's yes. I think it, it, it's fair to say um, to find um, Whit's uh, girlfriend, um, who is the Jane Grey uh, character, Kathy Moffat, who has uh, shot. With four times, one of which they say something like, "She made one of them good." So anyway, he's been seriously hurt, but not actually killed. And supposedly, she's run off with a large amount of money. And um, Mitchum goes off. He tracks down. Um, he tracks down Kathy and Acapulco. They decide not to. Um, he decides not to bring her back to Wit and uh, to run off together. But this um, all goes wrong. Well, they sort of live. They live sort of undercover for a while, but then get uh, 
get rather cocky with themselves and then get spotted by um by the Mitchum character's former former partner, you know, his uh, detective partner Fisher. Fisher and um and then they get they get tracked down. Um there's a there's a fight and then Kathy Kathy shoots Fisher. So at this point I suppose from Mitchum's point of view her her true colours have been revealed. He learns that at this point that it is true that she um, she did steal steal the forty thousand dollars, but she's insisted that she didn't, um, and he apparently has up to this at this point believed her. So this is all the flashback, um, and then at this point, we, yeah, we sort of return to, to, to the present day, as it were. Uh, um, Mitchum goes in to the to meet Wit again, um, and is told in an elaborate story which i think we i think we see right from the outset he is not entirely uh, entirely convinced by but wit uh, basically wants him to uh, help him get out of uh, the possibility of going to jail for tax fraud and so he wants him to get some papers from a particular lawyer at which point we learn yeah that uh, that Kathy has in fact come back to wit she she emerges from the background of the of the shots in a kind of yeah sort of dramatic but unmarked uh, a kind of way out of the past exactly is that enough plot summary i think so yeah, yeah. yes yeah it's pretty much a sort of last man or last woman standing uh, yes, true. race to the to the bottom isn't it yeah so i i'm interested because this film because i sort of um even though i don't feel capable of the of, confidently giving a coherent plot summary i feel i know this film film rather well and it's one of my um well, it's one of my favorite film was but it's one of my one of my yeah the films i'm fondest of in general but i think it, it was a newer one to you Stephen. it was i don't have a past without of the past really we don't have a shared history i watched it for the first time a couple of weeks ago um and this is my third viewing um, so how did it yeah how did it stroke you on on first or second viewing it's... first viewing uh i was quite surprised by the start of the film because i was aware that i was watching a classic example of film noir so i was surprised by that setting and um by the tone and then i i was i was i was increasingly confused by the plot mm-hmm. um the first time around as often when you know you watch a film for the first time you you pay attention to story i think over mm. over anything else um it's not the case with all films but with with hollywood films i think that's the case yeah there's way that the complexity starts or the confusingness starts to run away from you i feel this is one of the distinctive things of the film because there are there are other noirs we might be able to think of where it's I mean, the big sleep would 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 be the famous example where I think the the confusingness of the plot is is, is established so early that either it loses you um, or you um, you're quite quickly I think sort of put into a mode of watching where um, at least certainly on, on an early viewing where you you kind of recognise that it's not going to be worth trying to keep all these details in, in your head and kind of kind of trusting the, the film's confusion is part of its effect, you know, or you'll just enjoy the, yeah, the, the wisecracking dialogue and the, and, and the cinematography and, you know, you, know, you know, Humphrey Bogart kind of sparring with Lauren McCourt, yeah, etc. Whereas this film, yeah, this film, I feel the fact that 
we get into those into that territory more gradually makes it perhaps all the more all the more disorientating or at least yeah certainly has a quite different effect I think it's one of the things that is really quite interesting with this film is to think about how it offsets some of the cliches of noir <laughs> so for example you know having mentioned why wise cracking dialogue again it's a little different in this it's not like Raymond Chandler is it characters don't often say what they mean I mean you can there's there's often the sort of talking out the side of one's mouth and and, Mm. and there's a slyness to the dialogue which is which is quite not noirish I suppose there's the um you could translate a number of the a number of the lines into into Mm. plain English you know and and, Mm. and, and, and they would be much less interesting much less beguiling. I mean, um, it, it certainly has the sort of dry, um, yeah, sort, sort of, sort of, sort of fatalistic, but also quite enjoyable. I mean, the kind of dialogue. It's often it it is quite funny in places, um, but it doesn't have that. It's not as it's not as flashy as that sort of Raymond Chandler kind of dialogue. You know, I mean, that line that I don't know if this is in any of the. Of the, of, of the adaptations and I forget actually which novel it comes from but the thing about uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be quoting this uh, entirely accurately but there's a line uh, to the effect that she's the kind of broad who would make make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window now that's not a line I can imagine in and out of the past at all yeah you can still tell that um, out of the past has been written by a novelist I think um, but a lot of the comebacks I suppose are quite slick and quite quick Mm. Um, there's not over elaborate description usually Um, often they'll the characters will dance around words or just slightly change the meaning of words Um, for example when um, I think it's either Joe or Wit um, probably Wit asks um, Jeff if he can listen and Jeff says I can I can hear Mm. I'm present but I won't be necessarily receptive to what you're saying i mean that's quite an important um sort of thematic or uh, something that runs through the entire film is uh, these um sort of motifs of of listening hearing speaking it's almost made sort of explicit right at the beginning of of, of the film there's a conversation between this character jim and the woman who runs the um you know kind of cafe um which is all about i mean it, yes it's, it's all about she she says what she sees and jim says are you sure you don't see what you hear so there's ideas of kind of gossip and but it's um yeah in, have you have you read the robert uh um robert pippin's chapter on this film because that's not, i think uh, that's the not i haven't him. I haven't haven't read a great deal on this film, but yeah, yes, Robert Pippin's book about about film noir, the first film that he covers in detail, um, is out of the past, um, and yeah, I think it's well worth worth reading. It's very interesting, but he, yeah, he he describes it almost as a you know sort of sort of surprisingly kind of abstract set of propositions about exactly how seeing and hearing and and saying might be related, and you know what might be a a sort of truthful way of them, them being related or not. So yes, yeah, so I think that's almost mm. something which the film makes makes explicit. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean the 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 minor character you just mentioned in the uh, cafe is almost she's like a 
I think of her as a sort of Thelma Ritter type, you know, very <laughs> yeah. straight talking and, well, says what she sees, perhaps, um, or perhaps not. And later on, um, I she- think that story's interesting. Yes, I think that. No, I think it's interesting. I mean, sort of imagining her being a Thelma Ritter character, I feel she's. <laughs> if this isn't isn't too too convoluted, I almost feel that perhaps she she thinks she's a Thelma Ritter kind of character. She has that. <laughs> she thinks she has a backbone, but maybe she doesn't have that kind of. Um, Yes, she thinks that she perceives accurately and she says what she sees, but precisely what's raised is perhaps whether... I know what you mean. You know, whether in fact she's not... Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a slight there's a slight need to be heard. Um, should we say... Yeah, should, should we say more about the the performances? Because there's a, there's a bunch of very striking performances in the film, aren't there? Yeah. Um, well, the performances are... And the roles are to some extent signalled by the names... I mean, Kirk Douglas's character is called Wit, and he's almost like the whittled mm. end of a sharp stick. He's very, <laughs> very pointed, mm. um, both in his sort of appearance and his sort of slick back hairstyle, and and in his um, and in his comebacks, um, and in his sort of fierceness, you know, his sort of mm. his sort of ferocity. And then we find out um, Jeff's real name is what is it Markman? Or Markham. Markham. Yes. He, he's a, he is he almost like a I suppose a marksman. Mark, I mean, he's someone who can hunt people down. Right. Yeah. You know. Um, so what do we do with Kathy uh, Moffat? Kathy Moffat. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not quite sure what we would do with that one. Like Little Miss Moffat. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's gendered that the men have very possibly strong. Fisher is more of an obvious one. Yes. Well, there's a whole thing running through the film about uh, about fishing of when course. we first first yeah. meet Jeff and um and Anne they're fishing and he's saying the fish aren't biting and there's mm. yeah later on a character gets in fact killed by being mm. uh, by being by being um uh caught by the end of 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 a fishing rod and and pulled off a off a cliff into a into the river. I mean Mitchum's excellent, isn't he? Yeah. Again on sort of un, un, understatement. Yes. There's there's also um thinking about um the characters as as being rounded, as being complex, there's a kind of tiredness about Mitchum which mm. which makes me think of Bogart. And interestingly Bogart yes. was supposed to be the, the lead for this film, the preferred lead, but Warner Brothers wouldn't release him to RKO. Right. But um, anyway, there there's a, a few, kind of wasn't fati- it not offered to a few people. It was offered around, yeah. yeah. But I think the novelist preferred Bogart above all. Right. Other. Yeah, yeah. But um, there's a kind of tiredness about um, Mitchum, which almost suggests that he's tired of playing this role. You know that he he can be um, quick talking and he can go on these jobs, but he, at the mm. end of the day, he just he sort of wants to wants to settle down and. Mm. Move to the country and go yes, fishing. Yes, absolutely. And... But, in, but interestingly, yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. But one might automatically think that that was also a, a, a sort of reflexive thing. But in fact, you know, about about the roles which Mitchum had played. But in fact, at this point, Mitchum hadn't played a great deal of role, roles like this, I don't think. I think this was one of the ones which, you know, set him up. Um, which, in a, a related point, not just not about um, him, I find it really interesting. I mean, isn't this... I think this is Kirk Douglas's second or third film. Like, the Strange Love of Martha Rivers, which I believe is his first film, I think that that's 46. Mm. But it strikes me that he gets a star sort of entrance in this. The camera pans across and he's he's in the sort of middle distance, but you, it's like very... I can't watch it without 
you know, uh, without feeling very much right. Here's Kirk Douglas. That's important. You know, it, it's a star. It's, it feels to me as a star performance. But then I, I can't help but be. Um, I'm watching that, having seen all the Kirk Douglas which came afterwards. So it it, it, it it can't have been seen like that at uh, the time. It, but that it almost seems that these characters have have. Um, um, that kind of weight that they have, that history yeah, behind yeah. them, is is interesting. That no, that, that Kirk is foregrounded as a star in that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you kind of agree? It, it it does feel like a like. I'm not quite sure how I would would argue for the case, but it, well, it just feels like he's handled like his sort of the way the character is, is introduced. It almost feels like he's given more of a star entrance than than Mitchum is. Remind me uh, what his entrance is. Uh... So they've been sort of, he's been talked about and he's been talked, you know, because he's been talked about between, between Jeff and, and, and Joe, you know, and so we know something about his power and how he's someone that you can't, you can't escape his grasp if he wants you back, you know, so we're, it's kind of set up that, that he's somebody powerful and impressive and dangerous Mm. who we might sort of want Mm. to see. And then, yeah, I mean, I think the camera, yeah, so then. As I said, I think that you know the camera just kind of pans across, and there he is. He is sat at a desk, but even that kind of quietness, and it's not a kind of dramatic close-up. That in itself, mm. I don't know. That usually, funny. when you introduce a star, I mean, you can do it in a number of ways. You can have them front and center from the start of the film. Um, usually, I think the noirs tend to sort of ease in a bit, a bit mm. more, and then sort of you wind your way through to the main cast, but. I suppose you could also have a, a late entry. That's a good way of foregrounding your star yes, character exactly. to, to build up to them. And and also, if they are stars, you can rely on shared knowledge, mm. uh, really, that the audience mm. knows what they're getting. And yeah. you don't have to be very direct about the character's traits or uh, uh, about, the, about mm. the package at all, you mm. know, because it comes with the star. Um, yes. it's, it's, all, it's all built yes. in. Um, so maybe I don't know. Maybe there's some case of you know you can have it can be a star entrance even if someone isn't at that point an incredibly famous actor. If you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, there's some um, recognition that, that that this is a way that you can treat this actor mm. that will work even if I mean clearly he wasn't unknown, but but he that he certainly was not didn't have the status mm. he would have had even I don't know five years later or you know. Mm. Um, I think he was on loan from. Paramount because he wasn't an RKO star, right? right. Um, and he was with Paramount for some years, right? Um, so they are he's almost treating him like a special guest. Mm, mm, <laughs> mm. And then Jane Greer, we should talk about Jane Greer, who also gives another excellent yeah. performance, I think. Yeah. When you're familiar with the film and you have got a handle on the plot, then I think it is possible to work out fairly fair, mm. you know, with a fair degree of consistency yeah. when she's lying. In the experience of the film. Uh, it's not at all clear. I mean, I don't know if it, to some extent, puts us in, obviously, Mitchum's position, who sort of you know, doesn't want to think she's lying for quite a lot of the film, simply because he's fallen in love with her. Um, she's given a, a big star entry, isn't she? I mean, it's it's a funny one. She's in Acapulco, and he's waiting in... I wouldn't say it's a dive, but it's a small bar, mm. and she literally walks out of the cinema almost. I mean, she, the well, cinema is is, is in <laughs> yes. the background, isn't yes. she? Isn't it when she walks into That's the true. Um, 
anyway. Well, and, and there's also the point, so she's both, it's a connection between cinema and also dream, because he makes the point that it's it's hot, it's the middle of the day, he's drinking beer, he's, he's sleepy. So she, again, almost literally materialises, walks in out, out of a dream, you know, you know, you stepped out of a dream as the, yeah, yeah. It struck me also, watching it this time, something I hadn't uh, noticed previously, she... There are kind of three points where her sort of entrance is 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 um, particularly remarked upon by the by the voiceover by the Mitchum character. And the first time that you just mentioned, she comes in out of the sunlight, whatever it says. Uh, then when he meets her a couple of days later at a bar, she walks in out out of the moonlight. And again, this is this is this is literally spoken. And then um, when 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 they meet up. Um, having been sort of lying low separately for a while um, just before she en- ends up shooting Fisher, she appears in the car headlights. <laughs> um, Walking up the road. Yeah, yeah I remember. so there's sort of explicit... I wouldn't quite go so far as to say it's sort of, you know, in, in, in drawing attention to it, its cinematic status and the way that, that the characters are lit, but it's at least it's, it's made explicit that she appears in different forms of natural and artificial light... <laughs> silhouetted or in in a kind of half light Mm. yeah there's some trajectory towards the i don't know is there a trajectory towards the more artificial i mean like you say we first appear when we first see her she does in a sense both sort of step out of the cinema and out of the dream but she is in broad daylight you know then it's moonlight which is easier to see things that aren't you know and then it's a headlight so it's not even Mm. it's not even natural light she's Mm. you know um, yeah, the artificiality. I suppose uh, to support the argument, they do end up going to San Francisco, and there you're in more traditional noir territory. At least it's a city, mm. and it's dark, mm. and they're on the streets. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, and at so, that yeah. point, they're sort of safe while they stay in the shadows, aren't they? That's the sort of thing they they while they're keeping to sort of more disreputable haunts and and stay, then yeah, and you know, staying out of the daylight they're um they're safe apparently this prob this film had some problems with with the code and joseph breen wasn't very happy with the fact that um kathy's character seemed to be living with both wit and um jeff at the same time mm. and so jeff's living situation in san francisco is kept deliberately sort of vague right. talking about light and things we should talk about how it should we talk about some of the some of its visual qualities? Nicholas Musaraka is the um, um, the cinematographer, um, and bit of course, of a, bit of a collaborator, was he, with uh, Jacques? With to- exactly yes, and sort of known, for, you know, those the those earlier earlier RKO um, um, Val Luton, you know, produced Jacques Tourneur directed um, sort of you know B horror movies. You know things that are now very well known and highly regarded, like Cat People. Um, you know he was the, the cinematographer on that as well. Um, but again, this is another of these, yeah, another of these things where I think this film sort of interestingly, um, you know, just slightly sort of sidesteps some of the conventions, or or is helpful in sort of thinking about them in a slightly more nuanced way because you know, these cliches that you still hear about noir and sometimes i think from from commentators who should know better is this idea of making the best of not having a great deal of money 
you know, and so, you know, shooting things with incredibly high contrast because you could, you know, if you left great areas of the shot in blackness, you couldn't see that it was unbelie- unbelievably cheap and, you know, whatever. Um, um, and, of course, you know, of certain films, that kind of thing is true. Um, but with this, I mean, RKO wasn't wasn't by any means... Uh, it seems to have been a studio that was in financial trouble for its entire existence, mm. as far as I can see. Yeah. But, but as far as budgets go, as 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 far as I know, this is not this is not a B movie. It's not the most expensive A movie compared to what, say, yeah, Warner Brothers would have been spending on on a film. But it wasn't cheap. Mm. Um, I, you know, um, I mean, there's there's a lot more location, you know, shooting on location than you. Um, you might expect from this from this period i mm. think even in some more um expensive films mm. yeah that's one of the surprising elements of the film that it is so airy <laughs> yeah yeah so that's yes yeah that's uh um, S- something something quite blatant about actually deciding to shoot a noir in mm. mexico in that harsh mm. kind of sunlight yeah 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 yes mm. well of course we could say the same thing that People always say, is of course, that they can't have known that they were shooting a noir because because the term hadn't actually been invented. So whatever they th- thought they were shooting, they that at least couldn't have called it a film noir. Still, yeah, you don't normally start your tense, you know, uh, detective thrillers in in sumptuous landscape. It has those things, which again are the the uh, the sort of standard visual qualities one could say with you know dramatic shadows and. Uh, um, kind of uh, dramatic angles of, of of shooting, but like by no means consistently throughout the whole film, right? It has quite a broad range of a sort of broad visual visual repertoire, don't you think? Yeah, uh, it's it's almost um, surprising when um, Robert Mitchum discovers Kirk Douglas shot dead on the floor, and the camera suddenly dollies towards him mm. um, in that mo- in that revelation. Um, because often in that space, in that um, mansion in the hills, the shots tend to be more like a tableau. I, I think a lot mm. of the dialogue is shot straight, for want of a better word. Mm. Um, usually, the film isn't. I don't think foregrounding those those devices. No, exactly. It's quite. I think one can make a case. It's all quite quite classical, isn't it? I mean, mm. if, again, if. If one of the cases has been made is, is that noir somehow sort of subverts a certain idea of a classical um, visual style, which is sort of at the service of its effects and not intended to, to draw attention to itself, um, you know, whereas perhaps, you know, noir films are commonly thought to or a certain number of noir films do make um, much more sort of explicit reference to their own you know visual qualities yeah with this film it does feel that um what feels to me that it's um although it's visually striking um that's that's very much at the service of the of the narrative or of you know the emotional qualities it's remarked on in the film about uh, i mean by jeff among others of about how how rapidly he Caffey uh, is happy to switch sides, um, uh, but there's also the moment which again I keep mentioning the um, 
yeah, Robert Pippin piece on this, but he he has an in- interesting uh, discussion of this. The, the uh, scene in the um, in the office of the manager of the club um, which Wit owns, but where Wit is is not present, so various people are deciding. You know, like Jeff at this point has has the upper hand and has Wit's. Um, incriminating tax papers so there's yeah you know sparring going on um uh, as to who will come out on top because no one wants it wants wit to find out that they have lost his his papers um jeff lies to protect kathy and then about 10 seconds later drops her in it mm. you know there's like because he he he's asked how he knew that the papers were in this office um, and in fact, it's because Kathy told him, um, and she kind of shoots him an imploring glance, and he says, "Oh, it's because I had I had a secretary secretary tailed." Mm. So he tells a lie that has no motivation other than to protect Kathy. Mm. But then, yeah, sort of a, a couple of lines of dialogue later, he has the opportunity to you know deny that Kathy had done something else equally incriminating, and he just says, "Sorry, baby," or something. So that's quite psychologically um, yeah, interesting, but also kind of narratively confusing or mm-hmm. psychologically confusing. Um, you know, why has he just given up in those few seconds? He's realised he doesn't want to make the effort to um, to protect her. It almost comes back to the idea of fatigue again. Right. He's he's yeah. uh, he almost because he he's he's basically framed uh, for the for this. Um, the idea is that he's going to retrieve some papers from Eels, who again has a very interesting choice of name given the yes. situ- slippery yes. situation. He's in. Well, absolutely. And, and Eels, yes, Eels is is sort of is murdered, and we feel sort of sympathy for him. But he's also a blackmailer. So yeah, <laughs> uh, it's about exasperation almost with the whole the idea of being framed and oh isn't this sort of tiring that they think i'm this stupid that i would go along with this Mm. and i will for a little while Mm. but Mm. then i'll just sort of relax into it and almost have a bit of yes a little bit of fun with it uh maybe i have a excessively what would the word be pip the Pippinian uh, (laughs) reading of of this film but i think suitably convoluted yes uh, (laughs) yeah um yeah. So, one of the things is in that film noirs explore, or certain film noirs explore, interestingly, is that we don't find out who we are by sort of introspection, by just sort of you know, you know sitting down in, in, in a quiet room and kind of looking inside ourselves. We find out who we are by what we actually do. Whereas in a a more kind of classical film, even though we've said this film has perhaps <laughs> to some extent more classical elements than we might think or at least visually but um yeah it's a more classically constructed narrative it would seem very strange that he would defend kathy and then uh, and then cease uh, you know refuse to, to defend her sort of immediately that might seem like an incoherent character or we could we could look at this like you said i mean i think it's interesting we could say okay is there something is there some plan that he has which does make those moments coherent that he's sort of choosing he could be could be tormenting her right so yes he chooses to protect her um 
and then doesn't. But yeah, I think I like more. I think it does play in this idea of exhaustion. That something just happens. That he just stops wanting to, mm. you know. Perhaps he finds something out about himself. I don't know what that would be. He doesn't have time to you know reflect on that and put that in words. Good. Yes. Um, we should probably do a little Andy Bitty. Um, I'm trying to remember what we've had such a break. I'm trying to remember what the Andy Bitty sounds like. Thank you for listening to a discursion. Uh, um, it's been fun. Uh, uh, yes, it has been fun. Please um, like and subscribe. Uh, we are on Podbean, uh, iTunes, and also now Spotify. And we'll be back in the not too distant future with an as yet undetermined film. Thank you.